Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, and it begins on page 2 of your bulletin. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkur, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you so much for the hope that you've attached to this living word that comes from you as you're dwelling in our presence here. It gives um, the most discouraged of us or the most cynical of us the best hope. So we pray right now that you might reveal Jesus the Son to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, Meg and I have just returned, Meg, my wife, uh, we've just returned from a six-week sabbatical. And um, prior to that sabbatical, we had a chance to lead a group of folk from our church, along with another two churches, to Israel, the Holy Land. I had never been before. And before we start our fall series next week on the promises of God, I wanted to take some time and just share with you what I did on my summer vacation. You know, share with you... um, some lessons, a few lessons, that I feel like God gave to me during that time. seems appropriate. And I want to do so by way of this passage in John chapter 4, which which you heard read. And let's do it right away. Let's just jump in, okay? No more introduction. We're into it. The first point is this. Um, 
I came to be reminded and learn of the importance of real-world religion. The importance of real-world religion. Now, after I became a Christian, the first place my faith took me was not Israel. Uh, the first place I wanted to go to was Africa. So I ended up going there on a mission trip. And in all honesty, uh, traveling to Israel has not been high on my bucket list. Um, there are other places that I've wanted to go to. And uh, I think earlier in my faith, I would have said, take me to Scotland or Geneva so I can see the great Reformed people, you know, and what they wrote and what they did. Now, that may seem strange to you because, after all, I'm a minister. And I spent a lot of time reading the Bible and teaching the Bible. And you think, well, I would think, Glenn, that on your bucket list would be to go to Israel. If you've ever prepared to go on a trip for Israel and you tell people you're going to Israel, you hear this most certainly 90% of the time. You'll never read the Bible the same. That's what you hear people say. You'll never read the Bible the same. And why is that? Is it because we can finally understand what the maps in the back say? You know, because we, we had some geography or, you know, the scenery. What is it? And I, and I think uh, in part, but why is it? This is why I think that's true. Because the truth of God, you find, is not just here in my mind or here in my heart, but it's out there. The truth of God is out there. Let me explain what I mean. Um, I think, uh, especially if you've grown up in the church, it's very easy to think uh, that the story happens mostly through the telling, right? Through the children's book or the minister speaking, or maybe you like theology books and you've read a theology book. But the fact that the Christian faith teaches that the story is out there is really significant, I think, for a couple reasons. First, this. It means that the story is there and true whether I believe it or not. Whether what I feel, what I experience, it really doesn't matter. Seeing that the story's out there, it's there. Whether or not I buy into it or not, it's present. And this is a great contrast to modern spirituality. Modern people, uh, for them, spirituality is a creation of what they believe. That's how moderns do spirituality. My spirituality is a creation of my hopes, my beliefs, what I feel. It exists because I believe it. But actually, the Christian faith teaches the opposite. It teaches it just exists. It's there. It's a real-world religion. Whether I buy it or not, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River when it was at flood stage. I say that because if you've ever seen the Jordan River up to this point, you know, it's really not that big. But the Bible says they crossed it at flood stage. Just to be clear. The Sea of Galilee, the disciples fished in it and stood on the banks. Whether I believe it or not, it's there. I saw it. And Jacob's well in Samaria is also there. So that fact, coupled with the fact that our faith 
joins with the story results in this. Through knowing the stuff that's there and the stuff that you see, your faith actually gets deeper. It gets more connected. I'm going to try to explain it, but it's a mysterious thing. As we learn more of the real-world religion of the, of the Christian faith, you find that your faith actually grows. For example, you heard this passage read about the woman from Samaria. Now, you could hear that passage read and go, isn't that really cool? Jesus, you know, had compassion on this lonely woman, and he talked with her about some spiritual things. But if you know something about Samaria, the place in the real world, the place that our Old Testament reading was referring to, all of a sudden that story gets a lot more deeper and has greater impact upon you. When you understand that the king of Assyria, Israel's enemy, came and settled people there, and that some of the remaining Jews, a lot of them, instead of standing fast against their enemy, they embraced the pagan religion. They intermarried, even to the point where you read that horrendous line that children were sacrificed to the gods. When you understand that, and you understand that they were regarded by faithful Israelites as racially mixed, but also religiously unclean, the fact that Jesus did what he did isn't just nice, it's shocking. Jesus crosses national boundaries. He crosses cultural boundaries. He crosses gender boundaries. And he crosses moral boundaries so that he might engage this woman. And he drinks from the same cup that she has. And so the story strengthens your faith. As I was in Israel, and I walked around, I began, I'll be honest with you, I didn't go with high expectations. You know, there's a whole sort of crew of people that venerate going to Israel. And I was excited to go to Israel. But, you know, I'm not going to be in this group that, like, venerates, that's going to bring back some holy water and say, would you, you know, baptize me with this? I think D.C.'s leaded water is just as good. <laughs> but I will say this. I did begin to um, see a defect in my faith. And that is this idea that mostly what I believe has been put together through beliefs and truth and things that I've read. And a little bit removed from a real world. So as God impacted me through the place, I think he humbled me. And said, you know, you're not above this. Which leads me to, a, you know, a, a sub-point under this one. And that is, are you in possession of five-cent faith? And by that, I don't mean nickels worth of faith. I mean five senses faith. You know, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch. A letter that John wrote later, after the one we read, he says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it. You, you heard all those references to sense, didn't you? I mean, he almost runs through all of them, right? What we heard, what we saw, what we touched. What he's saying is, my testimony about Jesus, the disciples' testimony about Jesus, is a real-world testimony. It's not just spiritual stuff that we believe. It doesn't exist because we just believe it. It exists. He existed. 
And the only way that you can get in on that is to be human. Right? I mean, you've got to have those senses. You know, as much as, as, much as uh, I, t- I told you that I've been watching this show, Westworld, and uh, it really plays with your mind because, you know, it's these, these um, they're not robots. What, what's, the, what's the phrase? What's that? AI. AI. They're AI, okay? They're AI. You all know what that is? They're robots. <laughs> no, but, you, you know... As convincing as they are, I, I mean, you can program the feeling and the touch, but, you know, it, you've got to be human to have that experience. And so, let, let me illustrate it this way. I, a couple of years ago, I was in Nashville, and I had a chance to go to the Musicians Hall of Fame. And as I was walking through that museum, I came across this piano. And as that piano sat there, they listed all the songs that had been recorded on that and it was amazing. Songs from the OJs, the Spinners, David Bowie, Young Americans, B.B. King. And I found myself, when I saw that piano reading that, going, I had to touch it. Right? I had to touch it. Why did I have to touch it? Maybe you've had that experience where there's a, a particular historian or thinker you really revere. And you've, you know, you've had a chance to go to their home and you walk by their writing desk and you just touch it. Or maybe you're a, uh, you know, a fan of uh, battles, and you have to put your ha- hand on that cannon at that significant battle. There's something about you and I where the truth just descends deeper, and our experience changes when we enter into it with our senses. And that's something, frankly, that took me by surprise. Uh, the grace of God snuck up on me while I was in Israel. Because I found myself, I think about three or four days into it, you know, here I am standing in the remains of a synagogue that Jesus preached in. And as I stood in that synagogue, I was like, the one I consider to be the Lord and the master of the universe stood there and he preached. He preached. Or here are these steps that led down to the Mount of Olives. And he walked down that way just before he was crucified. So I, I think this is an appeal, uh, not so much to say, if you don't go to the Holy Land, you're not spiritual, okay? Uh, nowhere in the Bible are we called to make a pilgrimage. But we are called to learn the truth of God. But besides, the Holy Land isn't the only Holy Land. The entire earth is holy. That's what the Bible tells us. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and the fullness thereof. Psalm 19 tells us that the Lord testifies, right, through the creation, through the stars, through his handiwork. So the question, though, is, are you, is your whole self available to God that he might reach and teach you? Is it? And what does that look like in this city? Are you aware of the story of this city and the places of this city so that you might recognize where God has been and what he has done? Are you able to to see his handiwork or smell his handiwork when you go to a great restaurant and you're near the kitchen and the smell's just wafting, right? 
Some of us probably, I, I think we all have our way. Some of us probably process mostly that way, and maybe where we got to go is we got to get more truth. But, you know, I, I'm banking on this a little bit because this is the Presbyterian Reformed tradition. You know, we tend to process through the mind and through the head. So you might be like me and go, hey, Israel, that'd be nice, but, you know, no big deal. Because really what's important is what's on my shelf. It is important. The word has to have primacy. But God might surprise you. As we open our whole selves to him, what we feel, what we see, what we hear, what we touch, all of it, okay? And I think one of the ways that it really shows up is, are you appreciating this more? Pointing to the table, right? The place where God tests us on this five-sense faith are the sacraments. He actually gives us these two things that you have to experience because he, didn't, he doesn't want to get us to get too bobbleheaded. And so he gives us to them, or, and them to us. And basically, as we participate with our five senses, if you are growing in your appreciation, then I would say you're on a good road. But if you find yourself kind of going, yeah, it's not a big deal to take that. What's the big deal? Or you haven't been baptized and you're like, yeah, what's the big deal? Why do you got to be baptized? I would say, you know, that's more of a commentary on how you think about your humanity and your spirituality than it is theology. Well, they all kind of go together. All right, my second point, second lesson. So the first one was the importance of real world religion. The second one is God's passion to slake our thirst, God's passion to fill our thirst. One of the places we got to visit was Jacob's well. And I'm just curious, is there a desert up there? Is there? Oh, good. (laughs) There it is. I took that photo, by the way, on my iPhone. I'm hoping it might make one of the billboards on 395. (laughs) But... um, So, when you go to the Holy Land, you know, there's a spectrum. There are, um, there's some things where they're just, they're sort of guessing they think it happened around here. And then there's other things where you go, well, if Jesus wasn't tempted on that mountain, it was probably that one or that one. To me, it was just as cool. But every now and then, you come to a place, this is it. And Jacob's well is that. They've built a church around it, a Byzantine church way back when. There used to be a vault over the well. They've taken that off. And we were actually to go into that place. We had the place to ourselves. Go into it. And you can draw water from the well. That Katie did for us. Draw water from the well. And then we all shared the water from the well. We drank it. Someone had said to me, what was that like? I said, it tasted great. And since then, I haven't sinned once. <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's really... That was a nice perk to it. Um, But anyway, Jesus meets this woman at this well at high noon, the heat of the day. She's alone because she means to be alone, because she's an outcast. And we didn't read the passage uh, all the way down, but Jesus then begins. She's considered an immoral woman. She has a big scarlet letter on her. Um, She has several husbands. She had several husbands, and now the person she's with is not her husband. And it's shocking to everyone, 
shocking to the disciples, that Jesus would speak to her not only because she's a Samaritan, Samaritans were considered continually unclean, but because she's also a woman, but also because she's an immoral woman. Again, Jesus moves in. And his agenda, she thinks, is his thirst. But it becomes clear his agenda is her thirst. And my friends, his agenda this evening is your thirst. That's his agenda this evening. Your thirst. One of the things that's an impossible not to be confronted with when you're in Israel in the Holy Land is the presence of thirst and the preciousness of water. The presence of thirst and the preciousness of water. That's the desert wilderness, okay? That's a picture of the desert wilderness. Does it make you thirsty? Can you imagine being Israelites wandering there for 40 years, not knowing where your next meal or drink's coming from? I was a lot quicker to sort of laugh at the Israelites complaining till I saw that. I was like, man, I don't know if I would have made it out of that desert. I guess the Lord put me here at the right time so that I might actually persevere. And so you've got this barren desert, and our tour guide said this a couple times. He said, you know, for some of you, as I point out this small river, this brook, it doesn't, these lines of water don't look much to you, but they mean a lot to us because they sustain us in this land. They sustain us. They're precious. In the Bible of course, takes this theme, and we hear about it a lot, right? You, you, you can't read the Bible and not get the sense of the presence of thirst. The psalmist, Lord, I'm in a dry and weary land. God, Moses, bringing water out of the rock. And the Samaritan at the well. Now, we know a couple things, right? Basic things about thirst. If you exercise a lot in the heat, or you get sick, you got to be careful of two things. One, well, one thing, you got to be careful that you don't dehydrate, right? And there's two important steps to that. One, the first thing is you have to actually recognize that you're thirsty. That's the most important one. You have to recognize that you're dehydrated. And then the second thing is you have to reach for something that will hydrate you. So if you're dehydrated and you reach for an iced coffee, or a beer, they're actually going to dehydrate you. Well, there's a similarity with spiritual thirst. Uh, this woman does not recognize that she's spiritually thirsty. And whatever's going on underneath the, the hood there, the way she's been trying to slake that thirst is by stuff that's been dehydrated. That is just relationship after relationship after relationship. And you and I are in the same boat here. I would ask you, are you aware of how you're thirsty? Soul thirsty. Are you aware of that? And for you, it may be romantic relationships, or it may be the perfect friendship or the perfect family that you want to have. Or maybe the thirst for you, you feel it every day is that thirst to make your mark here. Thirst to be appreciated in the office. Thirst to have some sort of approval. And it feels that way, right? I mean, it just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. It's there with us. 
The sign of what we thirst in is basically those desires that are raging. If there was ever an Old Testament prophecy that described a New Testament uh, account, the one we have today, it's the prophecy out of Jeremiah chapter 2, and I know some of you are familiar with it. This is what it says. Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? What happened? What happened to get that sort of intro? My people have committed two evils. This has got to be bad. What have they done? Here's what they've done. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Heaven is appalled. The evil that has been done is you and I have turned our thirst away from the living God and turned it to all these other things that don't slake our thirst. Um, what would Jesus speak to you about at that well? What would it be the thing where he goes, yeah, I, I know you're thirsty. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, in his book, The Silver Chair, uh, has this wonderful, profound, poignant um, scene in it where Aslan, the Lion King, um, thirsty, Aslan, the Lion King, um, has an interaction with Jill, one of the kids, and Jill is extremely thirsty. And she sees a stream, but the only difficulty is, is he's sitting on the other side of it. And I give you a portion of it, but uh, let me read the fuller account. Uh, Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Jesus is uh, with this woman at the well, and she says, um, you don't have anything to draw with. And he says to her, there is no other stream. You don't have anything to draw with, do you? There's no other stream. Uh, One of the things that I love about this passage is the way it starts, and theologians uh, no, the, you know, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And uh, it could be because that was the shortest route. Strict Jews would never go through there, but others would say, well, it's the shortest route I'm going to go through. But that phrase, had to, in the book of John, is one of divine necessity. It indicates in relationship to Jesus, because you find it in other places like he had to go to Jerusalem. 
It indicates divine purpose and divine planning. And so what it's saying here is that Jesus had to go and fill this woman's thirst. That's why he went. The Son of God went all the way there, took an entire day, got thirsty because he wanted this woman to have her thirst slaked. And the same is with you. He comes tonight personally through his word because he wants you to have your thirst filled by him. And the way this plays out, as you move on to the Gospels, you find that what does he do? He becomes unclean. As he shared the cup with that woman, he was becoming unclean with her. He would become unclean for us as he takes on our sin and he takes on our wrongdoing. And then on the cross, he would be lifted up and he would cry out, I thirst. And he's not talking about just I'm thirsty. He's drinking from the cup of God's wrath. His body is vacant. He has become a desert inside. His life has gone dark. His noonday thirst is turned to a black midnight, black hole thirst. Why? So that you won't have to be thirsty anymore. And I won't have to be thirsty anymore. So we could have the gift of life, God's spirit who is often likened to water, who lives inside of us. And here's the beautiful thing about it. I I think the best part of this, I wish we could have read the whole thing, is Jesus says, the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Did you hear that? The water that I give will then, you um, you know, the dry ground will then become a geyser. It becomes a fountain. And you see this in this woman's life. She then runs into town with all this renewed boldness, And we're told that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She was vulnerable. This was my thirst. He totally unveiled what I was thirsty about. And then he gave me himself living water. And it says then the Samaritans went out to the well and they pleaded that Jesus would stay. And many, many believed. And it's the same with you and I as we drink of this water. And this, I see this in you. I see this in your ministries. I, you have no idea, you know. You, you're not just like uh, this, you know, this hole that drinks water. You, you're a sprinkler. You're a fountain. Water is shooting out on the people you know. And as we're in the city here, you know, we take this overflow. We go out the doors and we share people, this is how I was thirsty. And this is how he's met my thirst. The story with Jill ends this way, before the lion. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. And the same can be said of Christ. And so... On my time away, I feel like God pressed two things into me. One, he asked me, Glenn, uh, as you get older, are you becoming more human? Uh, Can I reach you? Are you in touch with the real world religion? And also, can you take your thirst and bring it to me again and again and again? And I pray 
that the presence and the preciousness of that would be um, for all that here today. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the Savior you are. Thank you that you care about individuals in their thirst as you did this woman. You're present here, and I pray that you would do the same for each of us here. In Christ's name, amen.